I turn to First John chapter two. First John two seven through eleven. Let's pray. Our Father, your commandments are pure and good altogether. They are true. May they be true in us, not only as a standard of righteousness that we know, but a word that we live as the natural outworking of the union that we have with your dear Son through faith. May our lives reflect our professions. Particularly this morning, I ask that this congregation of your saints in this place may be marked by a mutual love for one another. May we enjoy the fellowship that we already have in you. May we care for one another. May we sacrificially give of ourselves to serve each other. May this church be marked by a steadfast commitment among the brethren. As we are in the light, may the light be reflected from this place and shine into the world. For the sake of Christ and in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's words. 1 John 2, 7-11. through 11. The Apostle says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is in the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother in the darkness is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. You may be seated. In in Star Trek, some of you will have to pardon a Star Trek introduction and some of you will enjoy it, but in Star Trek there's a species called the changelings. Their natural state is this gelatinous goo, but they can kind of change themselves into whatever they want, including a human being. So their intentions are generally nefarious, and so they will sometimes take human form and impersonate somebody, look and sound exactly like them in order to infiltrate and to wreak some manner of havoc. The only way to tell if the person in the room is the real person or a, a, a substitute, a changeling, is to take a blood sample. Cut them or take a sample and their blood, when extracted, will turn back into the gelatinous goo and not remain blood. The congregation that John is writing to is dealing with infiltrators, people who say, I'm a Christian, I am in the light. I know Jesus, but they are, in fact, imposters. Their gospel is different from the gospel of the apostles. And the congregation is wrestling with, are these people real Christians? And should I be listening to them? Because it seems from looking at First John that they are teachers as well. And John's response is essentially, okay, let's test this. Let's 
prick them and see if they bleed Christian or not. Last week I mentioned three major tests in Scripture that distinguish between true and false Christianity. There are others, but the three big ones are faith, which is, I think, the most important and primary, and then also uh, attributing to faith are the tests of obedience and love. So faith, obedience, and love. And last week John's focus was on the test of obedience. Do we obey Jesus? And now he turns to the test of love. Do we have love? And he begins by giving us uh, the standard or the, the test key, if you will, by defining what is the test. And so naturally, here he begins with the word beloved. He addresses them as beloved. So in other words, before I tell you about the love by which you will find yourself to be a true Christian and distinguish the false teachers as false Christians, let me just say to you, I love you, beloved. Some translate this uh, word beloved as dear friends. But beloved is a much more of a rich expression than dear friends. Dear people that I really like, I have a great deal of affection for. There's more to it than that. In Scripture, to be called beloved is to be named among the beloved. Robert Yarborough says that beloved has reference to the community of the new spiritual life of Christ which in turn is associated with divine election. You hear that? To be called beloved is to be called a member of the community of new spiritual life that is in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God has blessed us in the beloved, capital B. In other words, Jesus. He is the beloved. And later in the same book, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. As adopted children, as members of the new spiritual life in Christ. We are among the beloved because we are in the beloved. So this very address, in a sense, summarizes his whole point in this passage. Dear saints, counted among the beloved whom I love and with whom we all share divine love. And this address highlights a critical point as we as we approach first John that we always must keep in mind is that we are not coming to first John to afflict our consciences with doubt about our salvation. We are approaching it as Lord willing, as the beloved. We come first to seek to confirm our profession of faith. John is assuming they are among the beloved. So verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. I am writing to you. So on the heels of a passage about obedience, it makes sense that he would now address the commandments of Jesus. And, And he narrows the scope to a particular commandment in this context one that uniquely identifies believers as believers. And what is this commandment? He says it is an old commandment, and he says it is a new commandment. 
which is odd, an old commandment and a new commandment. It's also strange that to this point in 1 John, there have been no imperatives, no commands, and not until verse 15 of this chapter do we get uh, an imperative. So what commandment is he talking about? Well, the contrast in 9 through 11 makes it clear that he's talking about the commandment to love, specifically a unique kind of love, brotherly love, love among Christians. This is also consistent across John's biblical writings um, in this same book. First John 3.11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in Second John 5 and 6, or verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, probably referring to the church, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. That we love one another. And then, of course, we're all familiar with with Jesus' upper room discourse in John 13, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the new old commandment is... Love, brotherly love. And in what sense is this commandment new, and in what sense is it old? Well, it is old, commandment to love, in that we find it in the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, love God, love your neighbor. Jesus identified these two commandments as the first and second greatest commandments, and a summary of the law, and also it would not be difficult to trace the commandments to love all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis. But I think John actually has another beginning in mind, another reason why he calls it old, why it's from the beginning, is that he he says in verse 7, this old commandment is the word that you heard. The word that you have heard. In other words, this commandment has been part of the message that's been preached to you by the apostles from the very beginning, from the time you began to hear it. And indeed, from the time that Jesus initiated it with his apostles. So in other words, the commandment to love is is part and parcel with the apostolic word of the gospel. There's never been a time when the gospel came devoid or divorced from the command to love the brothers. They go together. The same sense is communicated in 2 John 5 and 6 when he says it is a commandment we have had from the beginning. We have had. And in verse uh, 6 he adds, and you should walk in the commandment just as you have heard it from the beginning. So you've been hearing this the whole time. So for John, this this commandment is is part and parcel. It's endemic. It's integral to the Christian message and to Christian identity. To love the brothers. It's an old commandment in that sense. And yet, in verse 8, it is also a new commandment. The text tells us in what sense it is new. He says it is true in him, in Christ, and in us. 
because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It is true. The commandment to love is true in him and in you. This means it's already a present reality in you and in him. This makes sense with Christ. Christ is himself the essence of love. He is love made manifest. He is perfect love exhibited. And it's already true in him. And because it's true in him and because you are in him by union with Christ through faith, it is true in you as well. The true vine will share its life with the engrafted vines, inevitably. Because we are united to Christ, there's a very real sense in which love is true in us already. This is critical to understand because John is still not yet giving us an imperative here. Love the brothers, although that's an important commandment. He's giving us an indicative. You do love the brothers because you are in Christ. It's already in you. It's true in you. This is one example of of the wonderful promise of the new covenant that in Christ the law would be written on our hearts that we read about in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8. The law is written on our hearts. John says it this way in in this same chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, and then verse 27. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And then in verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. It's already true in you. And why is it true in you? Why is it an indicative of the Christian life that we already, that love is true in us? He says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, what does that what does that mean? That's a bit cryptic as well, that the true light is is already shining. Does he mean that in our hearts we're being transformed and the darkness is being dispelled? Or does he mean that the world in the world eschatologically in these last days, there's a new light shining that's dispelling the darkness? And the answer is yes. Both are true because the the former is true because of the latter. We're being changed because Christ is changing the world. John says about Jesus in John chapter one in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So Christ is the light. The incarnation is the light. And in John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So the light, which had before been been veiled and dim, burst onto the scene at the incarnation and, and at the beginning of a new epoch of light began to shine light into the darkness. Calvin says, since Christ, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, has shown, while before there was only a dim light, we have the perfect, perfect radiance of divine truth, like the wanted brilliance of midday. 
Because we have Christ, we have the light. We abide in the light because he is light. G.K. Beale says, Thus the light of the new creation is breaking into the darkness of the old cosmos through the inaugurated resurrection of God's people and the fruit of love that they demonstrate. So we actually play a part in the light shining into the darkness, in the light of Christ shining into the darkness. Wasn't this Jesus' emphasis in John 13 when he gave the new commandment in the upper room? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's a a missionary emphasis here as well in the shining of the light into the darkness through brotherly love. So to summarize, I think John is saying that Love of the brethren is is old. It's integral to the apostolic message, but its freshness, its newness is found in the ongoing expression of love in the community of the beloved. In other words, it's not only integral to, to the Christian message, but it's integral to Christian expression and practice, not just to orthodoxy, but to orthopraxy. Because in these last times, Christ has dawned, the light has appeared, and those who are in the light reflect the light. And one marker, perhaps the most plain hallmark of light, is love. Christians love each other. Indicative, not imperative, it's true of you. Christians love each other. And this is what makes it a good baseline, a good standard, a good test key that John wants us to use to test the claims of the false teachers. When you prick a professing Christian, do they bleed love? John gives us the test here more directly in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Brother, they're referring to to Christian brothers, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So this is one more of these claim uh, sections in in First John. Whoever says is a claim that probably the false teachers were claiming this. We're we're in the light. We're we're illuminated. We're enlightened. Whoever says I'm in the light but hates his brother is proven to be false. He's still in the darkness. So let's test this claim. I'm, I'm in the light. Okay, we'll prick you. Let's see if you bleed blood, bleed love. Let's open you up and peek inside. And what do we find? We find hatred of Christians. Well, that's not of the light. That's of the darkness. Now, if only it was that easy to distinguish just just take a blood draw and see to do a little lab work and see is love present here um it's not that easy to distinguish how many people especially people claiming to be christians are going to outright say i hate christians or even do things that obviously proves that they do hate christians particularly in the sense that we use the word hate when we say hate, what, what comes to mind? 
Probably an emotion, right? A, a violent loathing, a disdain, a desire for destruction. And, and the Bible does use the word hate. Miso in the Greek in this way. But it also has, the Bible has a much broader concept of the word hate or hatred. And this is important because if the standard is just emotional loathing, probably even the false teachers in 1 John could pass the test. I don't, hate, I don't loathe Christians. I don't wish any ill on them. The Bible presents us with a much more covenantal and actions rather than emotions-based understanding of the concept of hatred. In other words, the word hate, it can be a loathsome desire for another's destruction, a, mur- a murderous uh, venom, but it also can be much more subtle, borne out in action or lack of ex- action, in, in divorcing oneself from someone else. First John <clears throat> chapter three shows us both kinds of hatred, um, beginning in verse 11. John says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So here's this more venomous, loathing kind of murderous hatred. Then we have another example here. What is hatred but the absence of love? True love is contrasted here in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, that's more subtle. That's a failure to love others. That's also hatred. So hatred may simply be an absence or lack of devotion, a forsaking or a rejection of those that we are meant to be in communion with. So in this context, I think it would be okay to paraphrase verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and forsakes his brother is still in darkness. Yarborough again is helpful here. He says Jesus himself may help define what hate in John's sense might have looked like as he glossed it in a statement preserved in Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when men hate you. And then some examples of this hatred when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Again, it's this idea of forsaking or rejection. Jesus also helps us understand hatred in a more broad context in Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's Jesus saying, you have to have murderous venom and hatred toward your family if you're going to follow me. Of course, of course he's not saying that. He means we must choose Jesus over our families. We must prize him higher than our families. If it comes down to choosing between Jesus and our families and our own life itself, 
we must be willing for, to forsake them in order to persist in fellowship with Christ. In just a few weeks, we'll look at the passage where John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. They, they forsook us because they weren't really a part of us. For John, forsaking the fellowship of the saints and the apostolic gospel that binds them together is the same expression as the hatred that he has in mind here, a forsaking, a departing. So you, you say you're in the light, but you're over there. You're apart from us. You've forsaken us. You're, you're unwilling to engage in the community of the believers, of the beloved. Unwilling to self-sacrificially serve among us. Unwilling to love us, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. That, that, that just doesn't communi- communicate. I, I'm in the light, but I'm walking in darkness. Indifferent affirmation, like the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right with me. Christians are just all right with me. Indifferent affirmation is just not enough. Christians, to have have a take it or leave it attitude about Christian fellowship that John spoke about in chapter 1, verse 4, to separate oneself from that fellowship, forsaking the brotherhood, forsaking the community of the beloved, to remove oneself from the covenant community is miseo, is hatred in this context. It's not possible to sever oneself from the body of Christ who is united to him without separating ourselves from Christ himself. Whoever says he is in the light hates his brother and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And I think it's important to clarify one thing here, that there are many professing Christians who, who claim Christ and at the same time refuse to be active participants with his body in the church. And it's theoretically possible for a person to be a true believer and yet not be in the church. But if we back up and we remember what John said, that the commandment is true in you and in him. It's an indicative already. That we do not gain fellowship and faith through Christian love, but rather love is the inevitable reality for all who are in Christ by faith. We, we remember that. Then we must see the wild inconsistency of having the indwelling love of believers in us while simultaneously steadfastly refusing to commune with them. Kelly's making ribs in the crock pot for Father's Day right now, and I, I enjoy ribs. Imagine me getting to the table. I love ribs, sitting down, and when they come around, I think I'll pass. It, it's, it doesn't make sense. If you are a believer, if you are really in the light, brotherly love is true in you. And if love is true in you, it will express itself toward its object. John goes on here and he fleshes out the implications of this test in the lives of both of those who love and those who hate. And these are the conclusions of the test in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Maybe you can look at this like a cancer screening. Normal white blood cell count. Healthy, low white cell blood, blood cell count. Cause for concern. Presence of love. Healthy profession. Absence of love. Anemic profession. Cause for concern. A person may appear to be very healthy, but on the inside a dark cancer may be growing and attacking his body. Calvin, helpfully here, he says, he again reminds us that whatever specious appearance of excellency you show, there is yet nothing but what is sinful if love be absent. This passage may be compared with 1 Corinthians 13. But this doctrine is not understood by the world because the greater part are dazzled by all sorts of masks or disguises. Thus, fictitious sanctity dazzles the eyes of almost all men while love is neglected or at least driven to the farthest corner. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to remove mountains, If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. In fly fishing, trout are the uh, sought-after species. Rainbow trout, browns, brook trout, cutthroat trout. And other than cutthroat trout, these fish are not native to our river systems. There is another native species called the mountain uh, whitefish in the rivers. And they say that the presence of the mountain whitefish is a sign of a healthy ecosystem in the river. Brotherly love is John's mountain whitefish. It's the sign of a healthy ecosystem. Love is the sign that we are indeed living in the light. It's confirming it, it is a confirming presence in our lives that, that, that we are indeed living quorum Deo before the face of God. And it's not always easy to determine, am I really in the light? John says, if you love, be confident, you are indeed abiding in the light. And in you there is no cause for stumbling. In other words, you're not going to crash and burn. You're not going to trip and fall off the side of a cliff. You will be preserved and persevere in Christ. But those who are in darkness, who are groping about, not knowing where they are going or what they are doing, we need to be aware of these blind guides. Their trajectory is toward destruction because they walk in darkness. There's, there's no mountain whitefish in their ecosystem. There's no sign of illumination in them. They do not love. They hate the brothers. And they have forsaken the beloved fellowship. I think Paul summarizes best here, and I'll just leave you... With uh, a word from him, I'll give him the last word. Second Corinthians 4, 4-6. through six. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen.